Welcome to the Seeking Pearls podcast. My name is Rebecca Meitinger. It is awesome to be here with you today. We are in episode 10 on our series that we've been in all summer on the Apostle Paul. It is called Paul, His Journeys, His Letters, His Jesus. We have walked with Paul through all of his journeys, his three missionary journeys as recorded in the book of Acts, as well as prior to his missionary journeys, we walked with him on the road to Damascus as he met the Lord Jesus and was converted to faith in Christ. And we spent time with him in Arabia as he went away to learn from Jesus and then went home to Tarsus for up to a decade and then pastored in the church in Antioch. All of that led up to his first missionary journey which he went on with Barnabas. And he has completed now three full missionary journeys. And that brings us to this episode. At the close of our last episode, Paul had left the Ephesian leaders that he had met on the coast of modern day Turkey. He had met them for a final goodbye and they had prayed and hugged and kissed and cried and he had left them and now he is sailing back to Jerusalem intending to drop off an offering that he has been collecting this entire time that he's been traveling. Especially in this third and final missionary journey, Paul has been collecting an offering not just to help out the Jews who are being persecuted in Jerusalem, although that's certainly true but also to build a bridge to have the Gentiles that he is ministering to, to build a bridge in such a way that the Gentiles are paying back to the Jews. Because everything that we have in Christ, everything that has been passed down to us, started with God's people, the Israelites. And so Paul is collecting a gift and offering for the church in Jerusalem as a way in which the Gentiles can say thank you to their Jewish brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. So he's on his way to Jerusalem to drop off this offering. He sails to the mainland of Israel, and we are going to pick up in chapter 21, verse 10. He is leaving the city of Tyre on the coast, on on the coast of Israel, and there are people who are warning him to not go to Jerusalem. We saw this also when he was saying goodbye to his Ephesian friends that they didn't want him to go to Jerusalem because they were so afraid for his life, afraid that he was going to get arrested. And Paul agrees with them that he may in fact get arrested. But that happens again as they are leaving Tyre. And so I want to share with you, or actually they are in Caesarea right now. So they're in Caesarea And before they leave to go to Jerusalem, he is warned to not go. So I'm going to start at chapter 21, verse 10. After we had been there for a number of days in Caesarea, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says in this way the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and hand him over to the Gentiles. Okay, so we met the prophet Agabus also in Acts chapter 11, quite a while ago, several weeks ago through the podcast, when Agabus prophesied that there was going to be a famine in Jerusalem. Now Agabus is prophesying again that Paul will be arrested in Jerusalem. This does not surprise Paul. Verse 12 When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul to not go to Jerusalem. 
And then Paul said, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and we said, the Lord's will be done. After this, we started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Mason, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. Verse 17. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Okay, I just think this is really amazing. So when they get to Jerusalem, they go to see James, who is the brother of Jesus. He is the leader of the Jerusalem church. And it says all the elders were present. So this likely refers to the apostles, all the apostles of Jesus who were still living. They were they were there. And this is just amazing to me to just imagine them all meeting together and celebrating what God is doing around the world. The, the men who walked with Jesus are all there celebrating what God is doing. So after this... Uh, I'm gonna. What I'm gonna do is, we are actually going to in this podcast, we're gonna cover six chapters from the Book of Acts. So we obviously can't go through that in verse by verse. So what I'm gonna do is, I'm going to jump around. I've chosen which parts I'm going to read from chapters 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, and 26. All of these chapters are. Paul on trial. So Paul is going to get arrested very soon here that we're going to see in Jerusalem. And then he will be on trial in Jerusalem and he gets transferred to Caesarea and he's on trial there with a a couple of different times. And so everything that I'm going to read is, is Paul's trial during this time. And we're going to jump around from Acts 21 through Acts 26. So the next part I'm going to read is seven days after Paul got to Jerusalem, starting down at verse 27 of chapter 21, verse 27. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and they seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us! This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law in this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defied this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul, and they assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. All right, in the temple in Jerusalem, there was a Gentile court where the Gentiles were allowed to go. But because the Gentiles did not follow the cleanliness laws, they were not allowed into any further into the temple than the Gentile court. Paul did not bring anybody who had not followed the cleanliness laws into the temple. They just assumed that he had. And so this is a false accusation. Please note that it says that these are Jews from the province of Asia who are stirring up the mob and accusing Paul falsely. The reason this is significant is because that is where Paul just was. On his third missionary journey, he spent two to three years in the province of Asia. That's where Ephesus is. And that is where Paul spent 
uh, a great deal of time, energy, love pouring into the province of Asia. And we did see when Paul was in Ephesus, we did see mob mentality. We saw persecution. But it clearly it is far more, far more persecution occurred in Asia than what we saw in the book of Acts as recorded in Ephesus. Paul does write a little bit more of that. We talked last time about how while Paul was in Ephesus for that two to three years, he wrote what we have as 1 Corinthians. And then as he left Ephesus and he traveled through Macedonia, while in Macedonia, he wrote what we have in our Bibles as 2 Corinthians. And in 2 Corinthians, so shortly after leaving the province of Asia, he wrote to the Corinthians, he wrote this in chapter 1, verses 8 through 10 of 2 Corinthians. He wrote, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. So that's just striking that he says that what they endured in Asia was like receiving the sentence of death so much so that we despaired of life itself but God did this so that we would depend on him so we see that while in Asia the persecution was far more than what we see recorded by Luke in the book of Acts and here we have Jews from Asia who have come to Jerusalem whether or not they were in Jerusalem to celebrate the holiday of Pentecost so there were people from all over the Roman Empire in Jerusalem at this time celebrating Pentecost. That might be why they were in Jerusalem, but also it makes you wonder if they followed Paul to Jerusalem for the purpose of raising up a mob mentality, which they're going to try to kill him. So verse 30 The whole city was aroused, and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple, and and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers, and he ran down to the crowd. When the soldiers saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked him who he was and and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another. And since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken to the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great that he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, get rid of him! As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he shouted to the commander, May I say something to you? You speak Greek? The commander asked. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrors out into the wilderness some time ago? That had happened about 10 years prior to this. We have historical evidence of that. um, And that's who the Roman commander thought that this was. But 
clearly it's it's not it's Paul in verse 39 Paul answered I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia a citizen of no ordinary city please let me speak to the people after receiving the commander's permission Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd and they were all silent and he said to them in Aramaic brothers and fathers listen now to my defense all right, so Paul is in the temple, in the men's quarters of the temple. There is a women's quarter of the temple. But since Paul says brothers and fathers, usually when Paul is speaking to a mixed crowd, he almost always says brothers and sisters. Here he says brothers and fathers, which would tell us that he's in the men's quarters of the temple. And he is being taken into the barracks of the Antonia Fortress, which is next to the temple. But First, Paul wants to speak to the people. He speaks to them in Aramaic, their language, the language of the Jews. And as soon as they realize that he is one of them, the crowd gets quiet and they listen to him. What he says, we have actually read before, he is going to share his testimony about who he is from his past, that he's Jewish, that he was born in Tarsus, that he was raised up under Gamaliel, which is a very respected rabbi in Jerusalem that he was a persecutor of the church and he's going to explain about how Jesus met him on the road to Damascus. So he is going to give his whole testimony and at the end of his testimony he is telling the people that God sent him to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, and as soon as he mentions that God has sent me to the Gentiles, the crowd gets very angry at the mention of the Gentiles. And so I'm going to pick up the story after his speech in chapter 22 at verse 22. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and they shouted, rid the earth of him, he is not fit to live. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust in the air, the commander ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. He directed that he be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do? he asked. Is this man, this man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and said, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. The commander said, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship. Well, I was born a citizen, Paul replied. Those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. All right, it was illegal and the punishment was severe for punishing a Roman citizen without a fair trial. So imagine Paul, he is draped over the stones that he would be laid over for a flogging. His arms were probably in straps. His feet were probably in straps. The flogging is ready to start. His back has been bared. And while he's in this position, he turns to the centurion, the guard standing there, and asks him, are you really going to do this? Because I'm a Roman citizen. And there's just like alarm going off and around the whole room. All the soldiers who are there are like, what? It says, the commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews. So the next day, he released him, and he ordered the chief priests and all the members of the Sanhedrin to assemble. 
Then he brought Paul and he had him stand before them. All right, so the next day, I'm just going to summarize what happens next. It's exactly what it says. The commander, whose name we learn is Claudius Lysias, he brings in the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, and Paul testifies before them. And they are so angry at him, they want to kill him. But according to the law, he has done nothing wrong. What I mean by that is according to the law under Rome, he has broken no laws. And he has done nothing to the Jews to cause this uproar. The reason that they're angry is because he believes in Jesus. And that is not something that the Roman law is concerned about at this point. And so he's done nothing wrong. So he is in trial again, and the Sanhedrin gets really angry. There's an uproar amongst the Pharisees and the Sadducees regarding resurrection. And then in verse 10, it says this, The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them, by the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, the Sadducees and Pharisees. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away by force and bring him back into the barracks. Verse 11 of chapter 23 is beautiful. The following night, the Lord stood near to Paul and he said, take courage as you have testified about me in Jerusalem. So also you must testify in Rome. So this is really neat because just shortly ago, so we're in about 57 AD right now. Actually, we can say with a fair amount of confidence that we are in 57 AD. And just shortly ago, when Paul was in Corinth, for three months after he left Ephesus, Paul went to Corinth for three months, and then he went up into Macedonia. While he was in Corinth, Paul wrote a letter to the church in Rome. He had never been to Rome. But in that letter to the church in Rome, he wrote about his desire to get to Rome and it, w- it was a dream and not just a dream but really an assurance that God had given him that he will get to Rome. It was a passion of his to get to Rome and he writes about that in that letter. We're going to look at that next week when he actually does get to Rome. We are going to look at some of those passages and see his heart for Rome. This is really neat though that As he had this terrifying experience where the Sanhedrin is so violent towards him that the commander is worried that they're going to tear Paul apart into pieces. Those are, that's strong language. (laughs) It must have been a terrifying experience. That night in his barracks, the Lord stood near to Paul and said, take courage as you have testified in Jerusalem, you must also testify in Rome. So Jesus is standing next to Paul. I believe literally. Some people believe it's a vision. I believe that the Lord really stood near to Paul and encouraged him and said, you are going to get to Rome and you will testify about me in Rome. You're going to live through this. You're going to live through this. Now, the next thing that happens, I I will continue reading on here in verse 12 of chapter 23. The next morning, some Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. 
They went to the chief priests and the elders and they said, We have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petitioned the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about this case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. So they're going to ambush him. There's 40 men who are not going to eat or drink anything until they have killed Paul. And they're going to ambush him when he is on his way to testify again in front of the Sanhedrin. Interestingly, as you go on in chapter 23, we find out in verse 16, but when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went to the barracks and told Paul. Now, this is so fascinating because this is the only mention we have of any of Paul's family. We don't know anything about his sister or his nephew who rescues Paul here. We know that Paul's family was a family of Pharisees, so this man could have been a Pharisee, and that could be why he got wind of this information. Maybe this young man was even a part of the Sanhedrin. We have no idea. We just don't know. And we don't know if most of Paul's family disowned him when Paul came to Christ. We don't know if this young man also came to Christ and that's why he wants to save Paul's life. I mean, we just have no idea. This is the only thing we hear about him. But Paul is his uncle and this young man goes and tells Paul. Paul then tells the centurion. The centurion tells the commander. And the commander realizes uh, that he needs to transfer Paul out of Jerusalem immediately and get him to Caesarea. In Caesarea, there is a, a palace. In Caesarea, there is a palace right on the coast, right by this, the Mediterranean Sea. There's a palace there that was built by Herod the Great. He died shortly like after Jesus was born. So the palace now, now that Caesarea and Israel is underneath Roman occupation, now the palace is where the governor that is assigned over this region lives. So Governor Felix lives there. So he is going to send Paul there. He writes a letter to Governor Felix and tells him that he is transferring Paul there and explains that the Sanhedrin is angry, that Paul has not broken any laws, that Paul is a Roman citizen, and that I'm sending him to you because they want to kill him here. When he sends Paul, he sends him with 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen, and they go at night <laughs> when after nightfall. So that is 470 protectors, bodyguards for Paul. I mean, this is just a huge ordeal, and they go in the nighttime. So verse 31 of chapter 23 is where I'm going to pick up the story. So the soldiers carrying out their orders took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. The next day they let the, let the cavalry go on without go on with him while they returned to the barracks. When the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. Learning that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. I'm just going to summarize now. A few days later, the high priest Ananias went to Caesarea along with some of the Jewish elders 
and with a lawyer named Tertullus. And they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. Okay, that was actually Acts 24, verse 1. So the some of the Jews are there to testify against Paul. And they give a speech about what they believe he has done wrong. And then Paul has a chance to respond to this. As he's responding, Felix realizes this man has done nothing wrong. There, He is in a disagreement with the Jewish leaders. The Jewish leaders are angry at him, but he has not broken any laws whatsoever. And so I'm going to read to you Felix's response after Paul explains his side of it. Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias, the commander, comes, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to come and take care of his needs. So here's the deal here. Paul is here at Herod's palace. He is in prison under guard. He may be in like a prison chamber or something, but Felix also orders that Paul be given some freedom so he can probably move about fairly freely and his friends are able to come and take care of him. So this is like... This is prison, sort of, but it's also probably really a respite for Paul. He is safe. He is not undergoing intense suffering right now. It's probably a time where he can heal a little bit from all of the suffering he has gone under. Of course, he doesn't know yet if he's going to live or die necessarily, but Felix is giving pretty clear signs that he sees no fault in Paul. Several days later, verse 24, several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and he listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and he said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I'll send for you again. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe, so he sent for him frequently and he talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, but because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. Two years go by. Paul is at Herod's palace on the Mediterranean Sea. He is granted freedom to move about fairly freely, possibly chained to a guard, possibly not, we're not sure. Friends can come and visit him. He is preaching the gospel to anyone who will hear, and specifically to Governor Felix, who we don't really get a feel ever came to Christ necessarily. It's unclear. But over those two years, he sends, he sends for Paul frequently to talk with him. Two years later, Governor Festus takes over as governor over Judea. Felix moves on. We're not sure what goes on with him. I don't know. I guess historians might, but I don't know what happens after to Felix after that. Festus takes over, and Paul is still in prison. He goes to Jerusalem, and the chief priests in Jerusalem meet with Festus and tell him about this prisoner that is at your palace in Caesarea and the charges they have against him. And they ask Festus 
to bring Paul to Jerusalem. They're like, please transfer him back to Jerusalem so that we can try him here. When really what we're told in the scripture is that they want to ambush him and they want to kill him on the way. And so they are trying to trick Festus into having him bring Paul to Jerusalem. Festus asks Paul if he'd be willing to do this. And this is Paul's answer in chapter 25, verse 10. I am now standing before Caesar's court, where I ought to be tried. I have not done any wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I'm guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. After Festus had conferred with his counselor, he declared, You have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar, you will go. The reason that Paul wants to go to Caesar is because he knows that he is innocent. He knows that he has done nothing in a civil court of law that could be found guilty. And so he appeals to Caesar. He also knows that that will bring him a passage to Rome and his desire is to get to Rome and to preach the gospel in Rome. The next thing that happens is King Agrippa, who would be over Governor Festus, he and his sister Bernice arrive in Caesarea to greet Festus. And Festus explains the situation about Paul to them and King Agrippa is like, oh, I would like to hear him. Uh, so I would like to hear him preach. I'm going to read what Festus says to them about Paul. I find it very interesting. Festus is explaining his conversation with the, with the Jewish leaders, the chief priests and the elders, and how angry they are when they were talking to him. He says in chapter 25, verse 16, he says, I told them it's not the Roman custom to hand over anyone before they have faced their accusers and have had the opportunity to defend themselves. When they came here with me, I did not delay the case, but I convened the court the next day and ordered the man to be brought in. When his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes I had expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus, who Paul claimed was alive. I was at a loss at how to investigate such matters. So I asked if he would like to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there. But when Paul made his appeal to be held over for the emperor's decision, I ordered him to be held here until I could send him to Caesar. I just think it's so interesting that as Festus is talking to King Agrippa, he's like, he's guilty of nothing. (laughs) He has done nothing wrong. They only have a dispute about some dead man that Paul claims is alive. He has done nothing wrong. He is innocent. It's so interesting because that is exactly what Governor Pilate, who is, he's in the same position. So Festus and Felix before him, that is the same position that Pontius Pilate was in Jesus. He's the governor over Judea. So same political position, different man, different decade, different trial, but so surprisingly similar that Pontius Pilate was like, this man has done nothing wrong. And the chief priests were so angry and wanted him to be crucified. And and Pilate was like, 
He's innocent. He has not committed any crimes. Same thing is going on here. So King Agrippa decides that he wants to hear Paul preach and wants, or not necessarily preach, but he wants to hear Paul give his own testimony. He wants to hear from Paul. And so the very next day, Paul is brought in again and he is going to give a speech, a testimony about all that has happened to him, everything he believes in. He is going to preach the gospel. His speech to King Agrippa is actually almost all of chapter 26 of Acts. And we have read that before as well. When we were talking about Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus, we came to Acts chapter 26 because he gives such a detailed account about his past and then about meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus. And he gives that whole story in chapter 26. And he tells all of that to King Agrippa in his speech. He gets to the part where he is talking about Jesus being raised from the dead. And at this point in chapter 20, uh, chapter 26, verse 24, at this point, Festus jumps in. And this might be the first time that Festus has heard Paul's entire testimony. And so Festus jumps in at this point. Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. Okay, I forgot to mention King Agrippa is Jewish and his sister Bernice, they are Jewish. And so he is very familiar with the story of Jesus uh, because it has been for the last uh, 25 years, if we're in about 57 AD here, or actually we're like in 59 because two years have passed since he got to Caesarea. So in, a, in 59 AD, possibly closer to 60 AD, you know, it's been 30 years since Jesus was crucified and resurrected. So certainly King, Agri King Agrippa and his sister Bernice have heard about Jesus the Messiah, and the, they've heard about the uproar it's been in Judaism. Okay, the king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. Then King Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to become a Christian? Paul replied, Short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but to all who are listening to me today, may become what I am, except for these chains. The king rose, and with him the governor and Bernice and those sitting with them. After they left the room, they began saying to each other, This man is not doing anything that deserves imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. All right, that brings us to the end of all of Paul's trials in Jerusalem and in Caesarea. He is innocent. That has been declared by every single person who has listened to him. The commander, Commander Lysias in Jerusalem. Governor Felix in Caesarea, Governor Festus in Caesarea, and King Agrippa in Caesarea, all of them have said he is innocent. He has done nothing wrong. 
He could have been set free, Agrippa said, if he had not appealed to Caesar. What's interesting, though, is that Paul did appeal to Caesar because the Lord stood by him and said, you must testify in Rome. And so Paul is going on to testify in Rome. He will sail shortly after this. When he sails, we're going to see next week in chapter 27, it is not an easy passage. It's a very dangerous passage. But he does get to Rome and he does preach the gospel in power for two years in Rome. I will save that for next week, though, because it's wonderful. But what I want to really focus on as we close up this one, this episode, is Paul's determination and Paul's single-minded vision that he is going to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether it brings life or whether it brings death, he will preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. A couple of years after this, probably near the end of his Roman imprisonment, Paul writes the letter to the Philippians. And in his letter to the Philippians, he writes beautiful words about his single-minded vision, his single-minded vision to preach the gospel. And I would like to share with you from Philippians chapter 1. I eagerly expect and I hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but that I will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether it's by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what should I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and your joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but that I will have sufficient courage. I've always just loved that phrase. Paul wants sufficient courage for what comes his way. The Lord stood by him to give him courage. His prayer is that he would have sufficient courage. Not that he would be a superhero, not that he would be scared and run the other direction, but just that he would have the exact amount of courage he needs, that he would have sufficient courage to exalt Christ in his body, whether it's by living in his body or if it's by dying, that Christ could be exalted. Sufficient courage. He wrote this letter to the Philippians after probably after about two years in the Roman prison, but I would imagine those words could certainly apply after two years in the Caesarean prison as well, that he just wants sufficient courage for whatever is coming his way as he is getting ready to go to Rome, 
as he is getting ready to testify in front of Caesar, who happens to be, by this time, Nero. Nero didn't become extraordinarily cruel until a little bit later, in the early 60s AD. Right now, in 5960 AD, he's not as cruel as he would be later on. Uh, But that is who Paul is going to testify against. It is who Paul will eventually die underneath. He will die under Nero's reign. And Paul is simply praying for sufficient courage, that Christ could be exalted in his body, whether that means living or dying, preaching the name of Jesus the whole time. That is his only aim. That is his only aim, is to preach the name of Jesus, to testify to the good news of the grace of God. That is his aim, whether by life or by death. That's what I want us to take with us today. I find that astounding and motivating and inspiring, and I want to be like that. In our next episode, we are going to wrap up. Paul is going to get to Rome, and we're going to see that story, see the shipwreck, find out what happens in Rome. And then our last episode, episode 12, is going to look specifically at Jesus, whom Paul preached. This series was called Paul, His Journeys, His Letters, His Jesus. We've done a ton of his journeys. We've done some of his letters. But really, the most important part is his Jesus. So I'm very excited for the last episode of this podcast series. It will very literally be almost entirely scripture, very little of my commentary. And it will be passages from Paul's letter about Jesus. So as Paul reveals Jesus to us through his letters, that is going to be what we are going to just read and look at in the final podcast of this series. So I'm very excited about that. I will see you again next time. Thanks so much for joining me. Bye.